evening, everyone, and welcome to the 2024 Lehrer Prize for Community Wellbeing Award Show. I'm Brian Lehrer, usually the host of The Brian Lehrer Show, heard here on WNYC on weekday mornings from 10 a.m. to noon. The music bringing us in tonight is El Maquic from Arturo O'Farrell's Fandango at the Wall, performed on either side of the U.S.-Mexico border. I believe the year was 2018, he'll tell us, and we'll explain why this in a minute. By way of background, I was honored and humbled a few years ago when, for the 30th anniversary of my show, the station established the Lehrer Prize for Community Well-Being in the spirit, hopefully, of what we try to help achieve every day on the show, and we hope a meaningful way to draw some extra attention and give a little bit of a financial boost to individuals or organizations doing important work for some kind of community well-being in the New York City area. This year, we chose as our theme, Helping the Asylum Seekers. Why? Well, here's the thing. No matter what anyone thinks of U.S. immigration policy or who should be paying for what or settling where, Mayor Adams estimates that there are 175,000 people who have arrived in the city just since 2022. And all politics aside, that's a lot of human beings who have done what nobody really wants to do unless they have to, right? Uproot themselves from their homes with little to their names and arrive in a foreign country where you have no work and don't speak the language because the risk of doing that seems smaller than the risk of staying home. So we invited nominations from our morning show listeners, and we have chosen three winners who you will meet this hour, all of them established New Yorkers who have decided to devote time and resources and energy to helping the asylum seekers. To help set this up, before the winners themselves come on, we have a very special guest who has come, as he always does, with inspiration for you, our listeners, and a piano in his pocket. Well, not in his pocket. You can't do that with a piano. But a piano beneath his hands and music along with justice in his heart and a new arts and education center he's setting up in Manhattan. So let's listen for a few seconds more and then welcome the great Arturo O'Farrell. This appropriately is from his project called Fandango at the Wall, once again, uh, recorded with 50 musicians spread out on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. The track is called Conga Patria. You will hear lyrics in Spanish, then we'll translate for those who need it. Okay, listeners, you can applaud if you're listening at home, but if you're driving and listening in your car, please do not applaud. Arturo O'Farrell from the Fandango at the Wall Project, which produced two albums, a book, and an HBO documentary. Arturo is a pianist, band leader, teacher, 
activist for good, born in Mexico, longtime New Yorker, and now the founder of Belongo, formerly known as the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance. And soon Belongo will have a live performance in community space called the Casa Belongo Music and Art Center at Park Avenue and 118th Street. Arturo, always good to talk. Thanks for kicking off the Lara Prize for Community Wellbeing Award Show with some music and inspiration. And welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. I have to say I'm honored to be uh, celebrating your uh, namesake award because uh, I've seen you for many years as a, a big part of what makes New York worth fighting for. And the discussions that are on your show are always about relevant issues to the day-to-day lives of New Yorkers, no matter what their socioeconomic strata. So thank you. I'm very honored to be invited to be here. Well, that means a lot to me coming from you. Want to translate those lyrics, some of them that we just heard? It's funny because it would be the opposite of what they mean. If you translate those lyrics, it means this wake up, uh, homeland, wake up. And that's not exactly, if you translate it exactly, that's what it means. But it doesn't mean that. It means wake up, my people, wake up. This Pieta Patria is more about wake up community, wake up to what's going on, wake up to what we're being dealt, and, 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 and be proud. This is the message of Fandango at the Wall. This is the message of all the things that I try to do. Be proud. Be proud of who you are, no matter what you find yourself in, whether you're a migrant dealing with the horrors of what we're trying to accomplish in the United States, and I do that, use that term broadly, but I also feel like one of the things that we need to do is, is, is tell our migrant population that, yes, be proud. I, I, whatever circumstances brought you to these shores, you've done an incredible, miraculous job of bringing yourself here. Somehow that has to count for something. Yeah, and that last line of that first verse that we were playing translates as wake up for your house to wake up, wake up. So wake up. That was before woke became a dirty word. Um, That's right. <laughs> we, we thought of you to kick this off because all kinds of politicians seem to be making a pilgrimage to the border these days to make a political point that the United States just can't handle any more asylum seekers. Your pilgrimage to the border really multiple ones, have been for such a different reason. How would you describe to listeners who don't know about Fandango at the Wall the reason for it, in your own words? Well, the Fandango at the Wall is a festival that takes place at the border of San Isidro and, uh, and, and Tijuana. San Isidro, of course, is the suburb of San Diego. And for 15 or maybe over 15 years, a gentleman by the name of Jorge Francisco Castillo has been gathering musicians on either side of Friendship Park. So they actually meet at the mesh. And there, in the presence of chicken wire, automatic weaponry, border guards, patrol dogs, and absolute fear, they celebrate community and life. And when I read about this so many years ago, I, I, I literally, I read the article in the Times, and I started crying because I thought this was such an elegant example of activism, artivism, whatever you want to call it. But you can use the actual elements of, of, of separation and alienation to, dis, to celebrate life. That seemed like the greatest thing I'd ever heard of. And it was, it's been a model for what I want to do in my life ever since. Artivism, that's a great word. And literally, people are on either side of the border. I guess at, at that particular border, there isn't really a, a wall you can kind of see each other describe the scene 
Well, there used to be. There used to be a mesh. They're trying to, by the way, President Biden is trying to erect further wall in that area called Friendship Park. It's a movement that, that people have been decrying in that area for many, many years now. But nonetheless, there is a mesh. And in fact, one of the funny things about the Fandango uh, at the Wall Project is we developed something called the Fandango Doctrine, where instead of giving each other a high five, the mesh is so fine that you can barely poke your pinky through it. So mm. we were giving each other high pinkies <laughs> through the mesh and celebrating the unity of humanity and, and decrying the, 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 the politics of separation. That's really great. It makes me think of how at the beginning of the pandemic, instead of shaking hands, people started giving each other fist bumps oh, yeah. much more regularly. Oh, yeah. So there's the, uh, the wall version of the fist bump is the pinky bump. The Fandango um, Doctrine. <laughs> and with the, the music that we heard, was that from um, a particular album recorded at the wall at one time? That was from the, an actual recording that we made at the wall during the Fandango Festival, the Fandango Fronterizo. And one of the messages that we wanted to bring was not just the message of recording at the wall with musicians from both sides of the United States and Mexico. We also wanted to bring that message to New York. So we brought that project to New York. We, of course, did an HBO uh, documentary. And to me, I have a dream, Brian. I don't know if I should share it here, but I will. I'd like to take that message and perform it at walls all over the Guantanamo, the, the militarization zone. I'd like to take that message. I'd like to bring our Mexican Son Jarocho brethren, along with humans from every, every walk of the earth to different borders and walls that are having this issue right now. And not to get too political, but it's reason to believe that there is some kind of limit to the number of asylum seekers and other migrants the U.S. can absorb at any one time. Is it shocking even to you to see this estimated 175,000 people in less than the last two years arrive in New York, uh, plus all the others you know, who are going elsewhere in the country uh, who are um, our honorees tonight are, are working very hard to serve? I, I am I am not shocked, and I'll be honest with you. I don't I don't uh, like to mince words, but a lot of these uh, asylum seekers are from countries that the United States has had a long history of involvement with, of imperialism towards, of setting up puppet dictatorships and starving economies and drug uh, transactional economies. This is our work. We are absorbing people who are leaving their countries because of havoc that we've wreaked in their countries. So to some degree, yes, it's a shocking number of people. On the other hand, it's a shocking amount of damage that the United States has done to, to entire parts of the world. Tell us why you changed the name of your Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance to Belongo, and tell us what the Casa Belongo Music and Art Center at Park Avenue and 118th Street will be. Belongo... The Afro-Latin Jazz Line started out because the orchestra started out as an Afro-Latin jazz project, but we found ourselves doing so much more. We found ourselves doing preservation of culture, education. We have 47 teachers serving 21 New York City public school districts, a pre-professional training program, retirement centers, community centers to the incarcerated population. We found that our work had begun as a jazz project and it just morphed into something much bigger. And the word that came to me was this, this, you know, this is a moment in the attack against the DEI, EDI work. So equity, diversity, inclusion seemed to me the wrong words to use. Equity, diversity, and belonging felt more 
appropriate to me. So really, these people, the people that we're serving belong to the communities that, that, that we're trying to serve. They're not included. We're not inviting them. We are, be, we are belonging to each other. And so belongo just seemed like a much more appropriate term to me to use. It has, of course, a, an Afro-Latin connotation. There's this famous song called Belongo, which is uh, uh, known to every Latin musician in the world. But to me, the important part of that word is belongo. And in the summer of 2024, we'll begin construction on a Casa Belongo, a performance community arts center that will be part of this, is the beautiful part of what lies in accordance with my belief structure. We're building this in an affordable housing building in Harlem. Did you hear that? Affordable housing <laughs> in Harlem. And our first, the first two floors of Timbali Terrace will be Casa Bilongo. And you better believe that's a place where we'll have a salsa orchestra for senior citizens, which I will personally audition for. <laughs> we'll have dances, we'll have classes, intergenerational activities, community cafe. That place will be a place that celebrates El Barrio and the people that came here 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago as migrants. When's opening night? Ah, we don't know yet. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're getting closer to announcing, and I want to invite you personally, because you've been such a big part of our journey. And, 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 and really, just I want to invite every We want to make that an entry point for people. One of the things we're talking about, and I don't know if I can even say this, but one of the things we're talking about is, yes, we have this migrant crisis. We also want to provide a jam session for people from all over the world. So we want Casa Pilongo to be an entry point for people coming to the United States to find musical expression and community. I mean, that may be crazy. A lot of people uh, are, are, you know, uh, 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 scapegoating everything on migrants. I think that's a mistake. Uh, yeah. we'd, rather, we'd rather put instruments in their hands than it anything. Reminds me a little bit of the old... Um, musician and composer and conductor David Amram, whose most well-known work was called No More Walls, and That's it was right. to bring together music from all kinds of traditions uh, into one musical space. And let me give you an advance invitation for whenever that opening day, opening night comes close to come back on the radio and and promote it and talk about it. Arturo O'Farrell, thank you so much. Thank Do you, you wanna Brian. Always an honor. Mention any uh, platform real quick or in-person venue where people can see and hear you right away. We're going to begin our 30th year of Sundays at Birdland in the fall. We've also got a concert coming up at Symphony Space celebrating the music of Paco de Lucia. We have a lot of different concerts that are coming up. We'll be celebrating at Town Hall, uh, at Bryant Park. We've got a concert coming up at Carnegie Hall. Um, all kinds of, if people want to get a view of where we're at, all they need to do is visit afrolatinjazz.org or bilongo.org, and they'll get a full listing of everything that, that we're doing, and also get a chance to visit our, our incredible plans for this new home. Great. So thank you again. And here's one more Fandango with the Wall excerpt, listeners. This is a few seconds of La Morena. Stay with us, folks, as we meet our honorees. It's the Lara Prize for Community Wellbeing Award Show on WNYC.
It's the 2024 Lehrer Prize for Community Wellbeing Award Show on WNYC. I'm Brian Lehrer, and this year we're honoring New Yorkers who are helping the asylum seekers. Take whatever position you want to on the politics of migration. The 175,000 New Yorkers, as estimated, new New Yorkers, I should say, as estimated by Mayor Adams to have come since 2022, are all human beings who have fled awful conditions in their home countries and are hoping to find safety, community, and maybe even prosperity here. We are honoring a few people who are helping the asylum seekers. Our first honoree is Power Malu, founder of the group Artists, Athletes, Activists. And we're starting with him because he's been meeting asylum seekers where their journey in New York so often begins at the Port Authority bus terminal. Power, thanks so much for your work. We are honored to honor you. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much, Brian. It's a privilege and an honor to be on your show. You have many fans out there in New York City, and I hope they're listening and getting a better glimpse as to what's happening on the ground, on the front line. Would you tell us first about your group, artists, athletes, activists, except for all beginning with the letter A, some people might think that's an unusual coalition. Yeah, so artists, athletes, activists are the three things that I encompass. I'm an artist, I'm an athlete, and I'm an activist. Um, our organization was founded in 2018. We did a lot of work uh, in Puerto Rico during Hurricane Maria uh, to help the survivors in the island. And then here in New York City, when the pandemic happened, we started helping out our communities by connecting with NYCHA development leaders and making sure that we were able to bring healthy fruits and vegetable options to the people that were in their homes and couldn't come out. Uh, Artists, Athletes, Activists continues to be a mobile help desk for our newest New Yorkers. We're pretty much on call 24-7, doing our part, as you mentioned. Uh, we started at the Port Authority. That's when the first buses began to arrive from Texas, the chartered buses, and we began as welcoming um, them, and then it turned into more case management. So we make sure that they're not left stranded and abandoned. Um, we, Whenever we are here in New York City to help them, to help the asylum seekers, we make it our duty to smile and welcome them with love and dignity, telling them that they may get blamed for a lot of the failures and incompetency of some, but overall, New Yorkers know that they are a blessing and they're not a burden to our city. Uh, the uh, primary purpose of our organization is to meet the needs of the asylum seekers and continue to address the issues. We are the first line of support. We are the ones that they meet when they first come here. And it was Port Authority. And now since the executive order, it's now Penn Station. Yeah. And I'll ask you in a few minutes how it's evolved after Mayor Adams' executive order limiting the bus arrivals at Port Authority. Yeah, now some people are coming in by train from New Jersey at Penn Station, but we'll get to that. I think our listeners might be curious to hear how that first meet and greet usually goes. So let's say someone gets off a bus at Port Authority, and then mm -hmm. what? Do you walk up to them and say, hi, I'm Power Malu, and I'm here to help you, or how does that go? 
Well, I, I want to shout out uh, Ilze and Adama Ba. I want to I want to shout out a lot of our volunteers. What what happens is that when the buses began arriving at Port Authority, I basically would get on the bus and welcome them, welcome them with dignity. I would tell them, you know, before anything, first and foremost, I just want to welcome you to New York City. I basically let them know that we are here for them and we're going to try to be there for them throughout this journey and help them with whatever they may need help with. So it's done with the purpose of making sure that we lower their anxiety levels because we know how they have been treated when they cross the border. And this is an opportunity for New Yorkers to right those wrongs, uh, to be able to welcome them with dignity and let them know that we know what they are going through and New Yorkers definitely are welcoming them and want to be there for them. That's a beautiful thing. But how do they know you're not a scam artist? You know, I'm thinking of the cliche of someone from elsewhere arriving in New York, inexperienced in the ways of the city, and some con man comes up to them and says, I can get you food and shelter or get you a good deal on something. Yeah. Just follow me. We know how that can go. Yeah. So what happens is that, you know, word gets around pretty fast. You know, that's the that's the wonderful thing about social media. So uh, when we are able to talk to them, listen to them. They see who we are. They pull out their phones. They use their phones. And when we're able to follow through with our promises and making sure that we get them the assistance that they need, they share that amongst their community. So they share our phone numbers. They share our pictures. You know, they were showing our, our, my picture around a lot of times. That became like the joke. Like, do you know this guy? And it, they would share it around their community. And when they would arrive on the buses, they knew right away who we were. Um, so I think that it's more about we don't advertise. It's more about them through word of mouth, knowing who's really there for them and who's going to stay true to their word. And that's the only thing that they have when they come here, because as you mentioned, there's so many people that made promises to them throughout their journey and they got scammed. And, and unfortunately, a lot of them got abused on their journey here. And we're here to just kind of have their back and, you know, be a, a, a listening board and be able to provide them with whatever they need so that they can become self-sufficient. And throughout this process, we have come through for a lot of them. You know, we're a small but mighty organization and they send that to their friends and family members. And when would they want to be reunited, we reunite a lot of families that have been separated at the border. We, we're not about talk. We're about action when we find solutions. And that's the, the beautiful thing about not getting into the politics of it and the bureaucracy. We're here to humanize the situation. And when we're able to do that, people see through all the, you know, the lies and the myths and they start actually stepping up. And we've had so many volunteers step up and so many New Yorkers step up because they see the actions that we take and we really do care. You know, we have a lot of empathy and, and, and we do this work with a lot of passion. And all we hope is that other people can see what the, the, the journey that these people have gone through to get here. And all they want to do is be able to contribute to our society. And I'm, for years, immigrants have already done that. And this new wave of immigrants is nothing different. I'm curious if the people arriving on the buses from Texas sent by Governor Abbott Talk about being coerced in any way to come to New York by the governor's people rather than stay in Texas, or if they're given a real choice and New York was where they wanted to land. Yeah, so Brian, I, I would be um, very um, 
upfront with you and let you know that we are in communication with a lot of grassroots organizations at the border. And they tell us that it's the opposite. It's not that people are being coerced to get on these buses. It's that when they arrive, they are only able to have them for about two to three days. And Texas is not their final destination. Their final destination may be another state. And it just so happens that if there are buses that are coming to different areas around the country for free. They're going to get on those buses. And a lot of times their family members have already come here or they have some friends that have already come here and they want to be able to reunite with them. Uh, a lot of the grassroots organizations do give us intel and let us know when those buses are heading out to New York City. So it's out of necessity. It's basically they get into the shelter system out there, that which is basically they do a triage. They ask them where they want to go. They give them food. And when they decide and they say whatever the destination is, if it's New York, they board a bus that's coming to New York City. And we get that intel. And that's why we're able to greet every single bus that has come here um, from the border to make sure that we get them to the intake center uh, safely. That is our number one priority. You did say every single bus, right? Absolutely. I say every single yeah, artists, athletes, activists has been there since day one. And frankly, you know, I'm not proud of this, but we have outlasted every single city agency that had one foot in, one foot out, playing hot potato with the topic. Unfortunately, this is a political thing and these human beings are being yeah. used as political pawns. But we make sure that we're there and we have our team present um, so that we make sure that we can get them into Ubers and Lyfts. Uh, or other forms of transportation so that they can get safely to the intake center. And then from there, we follow up with them so that they can come to our resource centers, um, which we're grateful to have one block away from the Port Authority, uh, which is called the Rock uh, Resources, Opportunity, Community and Connections in partnership with RMM and Metro Baptist. Uh, um, Metropolitan Baptist Church on West 40th Street there. Um, we need to move on to our next honoree in just a second, but I want to return to something that you mentioned very briefly earlier, because Mayor Adams has tried to put specific limits on the buses. They could only arrive Monday through Friday from 8.30 until noon after his executive order. So then the buses started letting people off at NJ Transit stations in New Jersey, and they were taking the train the rest of the way, so winding up at um, Penn Station. From what you can tell, is the weekday mornings thing being adhered to for the buses? And are we getting as many people at Penn Station now as at Port Authority? So it's not being um, adhered to because we basically were receiving everyone at the Port Authority via the buses. Now the difference is that when they arrive at New Jersey, it all depends on the time and what the schedule of the train is and what station they're at. So we, it's a lot of chaos. You know, it's a, I call it fabricated chaos. Unfortunately, everything that we've done um, becomes undone by a lot of these policies. Mm. Uh, and it's as, as simple as what's happening is that they get dropped off at a station. And depending on the schedule, if it stop, the train stops running at 1.30 a.m., then we're going to have to wait till 5 a.m. to receive the train. Um, we're still getting the intel and we're still getting people that are arriving uh, to New York City. So that didn't do anything other than cause a little bit more uh, turmoil for the New Yorkers on the ground that are actually trying to help and do the right thing uh, by that, getting them. 
That is Power Malu, founder of the group Artists, Athletes, Activists, our first honoree on our 2024 Lehrer Prize for Community Wellbeing Awards program with our theme for this year of Helping the Asylum Seekers. Power will rejoin us in a few minutes for an honorees roundtable after we meet the other two. Power, congratulations, and you can rejoin in a few, right? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Great. Now let's meet our second honoree, Nula O'Doherty Naranjo, from the basement of her home in Queens. Nula runs the Jackson Heights Immigrant Center, which she founded specifically to help the asylum seekers just last year. Nula, congratulations on being a Lara Prize honoree and welcome to WNYC. Oh, thank you, Brian. I'm a huge fan from back in the 1990s on On the Line. Ha, huh, when that used to be the name of the show that uh, airs from 10 a.m. to noon. And first things first, I'm told that you have sometimes been a caller to the show in the 10 a.m. to noon slot. Do you remember the last time you called in? Oh, yeah. I've been calling in, com- usually complaining about the uh, Adams administration and their handling of the immigration policies. Um, and uh, it really this whole Jackson Immigrant Center came out of just my frustration of no one helping the immigrants actually file for asylum applications. And you had some great segments on it, and I would call in. You're that Nula from Queens. Ha. <laughs> that um, Nula from Queens. <laughs> and you adapted this, I gather, from another community well-being project that you started at the beginning of the pandemic, right? That's correct. Um, I find that when you're faced with a gargantuan task, the best way to deal with it is gather your friends and neighbors to help and then get those who really need the help to help themselves. And that's what I learned in the pandemic when I did something called COVID Care Neighbor Network, in which we really helped, you know, grew this idea of mutual aid groups. And so when the immigrant crisis began, I did the same thing again. I got my friends and neighbors to help me. And now we're really relying on the immigrants themselves to help the immigrants. So I run a clinic three days a week that's helped over 2,000 people apply for asylum. And most of my volunteers are newly arrived immigrants who are waiting for the work authorization themselves and who've learned the process and to help the newest immigrant coming in. So it's really immigrants helping immigrants. I'll bet that's great for them, too, because if they come feeling kind of helpless, here they are being useful pretty quick, thanks in part to you. Well, I think my greatest accomplishment is that a number of people that I helped in the beginning now have work authorizations and are now working for local neighborhood organizations in full-time jobs with health insurance, helping people apply for asylum. So our first honoree, Power Malu, was just talking about meeting asylum seekers upon their first steps onto New York soil, if you can call Port Authority and Penn Station soil. You're out in Jackson Heights which I know is a straight shot from Port Authority on the good old number seven train. But how does it actually work that asylum seekers wind up coming to the Jackson Heights Immigrant Center? Well, I want to echo um, uh, power. It's really this network. I mean, it's a power of TikTok. I've done zero advertising. And yet every Monday and Wednesday and Friday, we have at least 40 people line up, rain, shine, snow, cold, um, trying to get their asylum application finished. One of my biggest problems is crowd control um, because we can only fit so many people each day. But there is this great network with social media. They all know what's happening, 
And I think it's amazing because I'll announce something in my class and the next day everyone just accepts it. No, now we're going to do it on at 10 o'clock. <laughs> um, so there is this great sharing of information among the newly arrived immigrant community. And um, the minute I got on TikTok, uh, I had lines outside the door. I see, and not to bum people out, but that you give this 90-minute orientation that you call crushing dreams. Really? It's, it's pretty harsh. Um, my kids call me a dream crusher. So I, I really think it's my responsibility to give them very realistic ambitions. Um, if, you, if, you, if you've come through the Darien, if you've walked your way here from Venezuela or Peru or Ecuador or Colombia, which is where most of my um, uh, clients come from, they have gone through the Darien. This has been a month-long journey, and they finally get here. And then they come and hear me and tell them that only one in 10 people actually win asylum, um, which can be just a crushing. But I think it's important they know that so that they can make the appropriate decisions um, in going forward. And I think it's really important that they know that and know the time frames. And I tell them in my class that we're, we're, by the end of the day, you should have some goals. Uh, I can pretty much guarantee you that in six months from now, you'll have a work authorization social security card. But if you don't know English, if you can't speak enough English to get to an interview, that's not going to help you so much. So I can help you get the social security number and the work authorization. You now have to learn enough English to do that next step so you can actually get a job with that social security card and work authorization. Yeah. So, so last it, question, it's kind of very harsh. <laughs> last question for now, and then we'll bring you back as part of the panel. Um, as you say, asylum seekers can currently get work permits six months after their asylum applications are filed. And you told us off the air that starting that clock, that six-month clock, is one of the ways that you think the city is failing many of the asylum seekers. What isn't the city doing that it could be doing? Well, they're catching up, but they were really slow into starting the clock. So they were helping people off the buses. They were giving them shelter, but they didn't say, and now fill out this form and start the clock. Um, that clock is so important because it's not that when you arrive here, you wait six months. It's six months after you fill out this form. And it's so important they fill out that form. And that's why groups like mine had to step in and say, let's get this done. Because so many people missed the boat. They missed that year deadline because they didn't file the form on time. And that is crucial. So I think one of the most important things, if you meet anyone who's newly arrived here, is say, hey, did you file? Make sure you file. That's Nula O'Doherty Naranjo, founder of the Jackson Heights Immigrant Center, our second honoree on our 2024 Lara Prize for Community Wellbeing Awards program with our theme for this year, Helping the Asylum Seekers. Nula will rejoin us in a few minutes for an honorees roundtable after we meet our third and final honoree. Nula, congratulations, and you can rejoin in a few, right? Great. And now let's meet our third and final honoree, Jesus Ahuayas, founder of a group called Aid for Life, which was founded in 2022 specifically to help the asylum seekers. Jesus is himself an immigrant from Venezuela, the country from which the biggest number of recent asylum seekers has been coming. Jesus, congratulations on being a Lara Prize honoree and welcome to WNYC. Hey, Brian, no, what an honor. I'm super honored and humbled to be here and Along with Power and Nuala, it's very exciting. Thank you so much. 
Can you tell us a little of your own story first? How and when did you wind up as a Venezuelan putting down roots in New York? Well, I came to New York late 80s and I landed, I came to visit a friend who was a member of ACT UP New York and as a Venezuelan immigrant myself at the time, speaking zero English, uh, I was in the hallways of the ACT UP meetings and I became an AIDS activist. So uh, that changed my perspective of community, community organizing and activism. And that took me to 1996. I started a, an organization called Aid for AIDS, um, securing HIV medications to immigrants in outside the U.S. and medicines for low and middle income countries and became a really large program. And back in the 90s, we started supporting the asylum seekers coming to New York City, uh, searching for health. Um, that's from 1996 to the year 2000. We supported over a thousand asylum seekers who were applying for asylum based on sexual orientation and HIV status. So we, we did it work with asylum seekers back then. And in 2017, moving forward, mm -hmm. um, we started helping uh, Venezuelans who were leaving um, Venezuela, walking out of Venezuela through Colombia going south. Um, Venezuelans, uh, they, were, they, they, they were called caminantes, the walkers walking the longest distance, you know, from Venezuela to Santiago, Chile. And so we expanded our services in, in South America, providing them humanitarian aid, and with a very focus of, you know, access to medicine, access to HIV medicine, and, and so forth. So back to, um, that was July, June, 2022. Um, I learned that the Venezuelans were the, the number one number of asylum seekers crossing the South border. And those that were sent to New York City by Governor Abbott. And one of my team members called um, a church in the Lower East Side, St. Therese Church. And mm -hmm. I wasn't even in New York when, when that happened. I, I was away for that weekend. and. So we activated what we know what to do. So we knew that the first thing is we needed to know who they are, recognize them, right? It's like mm -hmm. we're here. We, now you're in New York. We need to know who you are. So we started collecting clothes and shoes, as many New Yorkers did. But we, we learned from the get-go that we needed to start focusing on the integration process of these people. And what became something that we didn't know how long that was going to take is almost two years into uh, these services. So we have Saturdays, we call it jornadas. We added the word jornadas into, into the New York Spanglish language. Jornada means in Spanish, it's a long event. There's actually no translation. So everybody's right. talking about It's sort about of like a, a long work day, right? like a long event and this is to support asylum seekers so what what we did is we we they go through an intake process where we learn uh who they are you know where they come from how how big is the family level of education health question so it would help us to 
to connect them with services. Through those jornadas, they, they get clothes and shoes. And then, very important, hot meals. We were able to secure some funding, and we actually buy food from a Lower East Side restaurant, and we give them rice and, be rice and beans. The vast majority of the people that we serve represent Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, and some people from African nations. But the vast majority come from South America. So we realized that having hot meal, like rice and bean, chicken, meat, it, it really it brings their dignity back. Nice. And after that, we started inviting invited them to be part of the work. So from the get-go, asylum seekers became volunteers. And I, almost two years into it, we build in community. And as a Venezuelan, which I know. Very I, similar I to what Nula was telling us about the Jackson Heights Immigrant Center, uh, working with the asylum seekers when they get, when they get a, a little bit of their feet on the ground uh, to start working to help people who are coming behind them. Just tell me, before we take a break and we bring you back with the other two honorees and we all kind of chat together, how much of a pre-existing Venezuelan community would you say there was in New York before 2022 and how much of one is there now? Well, um, no, before 2022, I, I believe we were 30,000 in the tri-state tri area and Venezuelans alone, I think there almost 100,000 who arrived since um July 2022 or since April 2022. So on part of the work that we have supported over a 2,000 people applying for asylum, TPS. So we, we see the comprehensive approach and the focus is these people to actually integrate in New York. This, these are the new New Yorkers and Venezuelans who have no host community. Now we're building it on steroids. And that's what we do, yeah. and that's what we continue to do. And it's interesting about there being relatively few Venezuelans in New York before the surge. 30,000 is not that many, because typically I think no, immigrants that's come... That's tri-state. Tri that's Connecticut, New Jersey, yeah. and New York. Not right. only New York City. <laughs> so really sparse. And now there's no going back, right? Once a community this big gets established, like has happened in New York throughout the city's history, you know, with Dutch people and English people and Irish and Italian and Jewish and Dominican and other Caribbean, et cetera, et cetera, um, all meaningful populations here now, immigrants from those countries have reason to make this a destination. So now that has started with Venezuelans, right? Yeah, and, and these people, are, are, are they just want to contribute. Venezuelans, uh, when we look at the numbers, Venezuelans are the population that stay the least in the shelter system. And the entrepreneurs, the, the level of education is, is quite high. And the level of talent that they bring in, but not only Venezuelans, by the way, uh, that's the vast majority of asylum seekers. I'm talking about Venezuelans because of the large number. But the asylum seekers are contributing. They want to contribute. And that's what we are so committed to make sure that they can have a life, a prosperous right. life in New York City. That's Jesus Sabuayas, founder of Aid for Life, the third and final honoree on our 2024 Lara Prize for Community Wellbeing Awards program with our theme for this year, Helping the Asylum Seekers. Now, right after a break, Jesus will rejoin along with the other two winners, Nula and Power for an honorees roundtable in which they will compare notes on their work and get to ask each other a question or two, not just me doing all the asking. So stick around for that. 
2024 Lehrer Prize for Community Wellbeing Award Show on WNYC. I'm Brian Lehrer, and this year we're honoring New Yorkers who are helping the asylum seekers. The premise, one more time, is that you can take whatever position you want to on the politics of migration, the asylum system, right to shelter, whatever, but the 175,000 new New Yorkers, as estimated by Mayor Adams, to have arrived in the last two years are all human beings who have fled awful conditions in their home countries and are hoping to find safety, community, and maybe prosperity here. We are honoring three people and their groups that are helping the asylum seekers. And now the final portion of this hour that I've really been looking forward to when our three honorees get to talk a little bit with each other. So back with us are Power Malu, founder of the group Artists, Athletes, Activists, Nula Odaherty Naranjo, founder of the Jackson Heights Immigrant Center, and Jesus Hawaias, founder of the group Aid for Life. Congratulations again to all three of you. Let me go around the room and ask everybody in brief, What's the hardest part of your work helping the asylum seekers? Nula? I think the hardest part is the desperation. Um, I have real crowd control issues, and there are just so many people who are so desperate for our help and to say, don't worry, we're going to get to you, but just give us, be patient. Mm. But to deal with that desperation in and out is hard because you see they've got such dreams and they want so much help, and there's only a few of us to help them. So that desperation and working with that every day and not letting that desperation get you down yeah. and go back each time with that energy to say, let's help some more people. Power, how about you? Same question. The hardest part for us is just being on the ground on the front line and being the go-to people that they call constantly whenever they're being mistreated at the shelters or they're given misinformation uh, and then we try our best to just do away with the silos and the bureaucracy and kind of come up with solutions. And it just sometimes seems that when we do come up with solutions and we help to build community and we have a lot of volunteers that step up, somehow the city comes up with a policy that undoes the beautiful work that New Yorkers are doing. And to me, that's the hardest part of all of this, is that I know New Yorkers really care and they have been stepping up, but somehow... This administration finds a way to undo and cause chaos amongst the beautiful work that's being done to help these asylum seekers become hey, self-sufficient. Hey, Sue, same question. Well, uh, uh, for me, it's a misinformation that asylum seekers go through. And I'm going to echo what Anuala mentioned. A, a lot of asylum seekers do not apply for asylum because they don't understand it. They don't understand the process. And, and, and one of the challenges for us is it's how do we break down that information? We, we do workshops every week, twice a week, about 50 people go through our workshop where we break this down like for a fourth grader and we increase the amount of people applying for asylum. And one of the challenges is the funding disparity. The funding goes to the large organizations and, and, and it's like you start competing uh, with the city or with other big groups that want the small groups out. Um, that's a challenge for us. I think you each heard each other's one-on-one -on -one interviews. So I wonder if anyone has a question after that that you would like to ask one of the other honorees. Anybody want to jump up? Well, sure. I want to ask Power. Uh, go ahead. Uh, Sorry, uh, I guess we both jump hey, at the same time. Hey, Seuss, you want to ask Power something? Is that what you said? Well, no, I want to ask Power 
Power, you are an inspiration, man. I told you that once, and you represent what New York is all about. You have an incredible energy. Where do you get your energy? Because, I mean, you, I saw you. you there from day one at Port Authority. You still do that. And, I mean, uh, you, you are somebody that we need to replicate. Where do you get that energy to, to be right there in Port Authority and, and give so much love the way you do? Well, uh, thank you so much, Jesus, um, and I really appreciate those words. Um, I sometimes question myself physically. I may get tired, but spiritually, I know that I'm tapping into my intuition. Um, I'm committing to my role and submitting to my soul. It's just something that I know that needs to be done. Um, and I've always been an advocate for those that are seldom heard. So the energy really is is a spiritual energy, and I just ask for blessings um, from a lot of our elders, and I tap into a lot of our ancestors mm. to to give me that energy to keep going. So for me, it's more like a, a spiritual thing and knowing that we need to do this. We we need to lend a helping hand because those people are going to pay it forward the same way you see people paying it forward with your organization and in Jackson Heights as well. That's the and, most that we ask is that to create those ripples that create those waves of love. And Nula, you had a question for one of your colleagues? Yeah. And for Jesus and, and, and Power as well, I think we all agree that it's really important to have that welcoming attitude. I spend a lot of time on my, my class um, in each clinic where we say, we welcome you. New York City is a city of immigrants. We want you here. We welcome you here. But I think that next step is how we help them build community because they've all been kind of uprooted and they're now here in New York City, and we want them to be strong immigrants. We want them to be able to grow roots and be strong here. How do you think we can best build community with these newly arrived 125,000 neighbors? Uh, Noel, I, I invite you to come to our Jornadas on Saturday at 166 Essex Street at PS20. We've been we developing a model that uh, we're happy to, for you to come see, and we want it to be replicated. I think you're in the right track. What you do, it's, it's amazing and necessary. And so we should definitely, you know, continue talking and come see it. We can do it. We're already doing it. And it's not enough, by the way. This is something that all these best practices, we need to replicate it throughout the city. Like, for, for instance, right now, um, we in the Lower East Side, and on Avenue B and 7th Street is a ticketing center at the St. Rigid Catholic School. It's a former Catholic school. There's a lot of West Africans, um, people from Senegal and, and from uh, Mauritania. And we don't have enough West Africans uh, volunteers, and not alone, not alone uh, uh, asylum seekers, but none of us speak, uh, you, you know, it's any any of those African languages besides French, and it's not enough. So we're inviting, you know, West Africans to to come to A for Life and and help us out. But the model for Latin Americans is happening, is strong, and I invite you to come see it. And Power, do you have a question for the other guys? Oh, a question. Oh, I was gonna um, answer, but um, yeah, just it would be the same thing. It would be for me the challenges that I have faced. I know I voiced some of those and I want to know for them what, what are the biggest challenges aside from um, funding, which we all need. But um, what do they see as a, the biggest challenges throughout this process? Nuli, you want to take that one? 
Sure. So, Power, I think one of you brought up the fact that it's so frustrating to see how all the funding goes to these big organizations, um, where it's often these small neighborhood-based community aid organizations are on the ground doing the frontline work. So the funding is always an issue. The other is just connecting and, and, and talking to the city, knowing what the policies are. The policies change constantly. Um, and it's really hard to connect to other groups who are helping. And it's taken me months to kind of find all the different neighborhood groups so I can then say, oh, you don't have shoes. You can go to community over on Corona Avenue and get some shoes. Or you're LGBTQ or transgender. You should go to Voces Latina and get help there. But kind of connecting them to all the different groups. Let That's me go great. around. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Did you want to say something, Power? Yeah, I just wanted to add that um, part of building community, like we have, we also uh, started uh, youth uh, immigrant uh, asylum seeker football clinic, and that's a beautiful thing that happens every other Saturday. And uh, we have youth from ages five to fourteen, and they come together and they speak different languages, but they love the sport of football, soccer, and they communicate that way. And it's beautiful to see them be kids again. Um, And on top of that, I have a big running community and I plan to run the New York City Marathon with some asylum seekers. And it would be a representation of their journey and being here in New York City. 20 second answers on this one. Like, quick question, quick answer. What's the most common reason that your clients give for having left their country? And does it vary from country to country? Uh, How about for Venezuelans? Jesus. Oh, they want us to survive. They want, they're looking for safety. They want to start a new life in a safe environment. Nula? Um, For Peru and Ecuador, it's the just rampant extortion and the collapse of the government to provide any kind of security for the people. Power? Uh, I would say in Mauritania, there's still slavery still exists. Um, there's a lot of unaccompanied minors that are coming from Africa, and we have to do our best to take care of them. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of people escaping the persecution that's happening in their countries. So last question, and we've got about two minutes left in the show. Way back at the beginning, Arturo O'Farrell was pointing out that it's been U.S. policy over the decades that have helped to create these desperate uh, conditions in Latin America, driving so many people here now. In your opinion, can the United States help solve the conditions in the home countries that will help end the demand to come here out of desperation? And if so, how? Jesus, could you start that one for Venezuela real briefly? uh, You you gave me the the, the hard one. Uh, I mean, I I think uh, I probably agree that the U.S. has done terrible things around the world, but not not to Venezuela. The Venezuela no. was a, a di- dictator and the dictator that is still there. The U.S. had nothing to do with it. Okay. It's a very difficult situation as the, it's organized crime who's running Venezuela. And when you have organized crime run, running a country, it, it, I, I don't know, it's a, it's a very hard one. Um, I, I believe that another 7 million Venezuelans right now is, is, is close to 8 million Venezuelans outside Venezuela. If this year it should be a, a, an election year in Venezuela, I, I'm not hopeful at all. I think we're going to get another 7 million Venezuelans in the next four years. Oh, wow. And Power, real quick. Do I just is, need to move it along because yeah, the show's about yeah. to end. Power, anything the U.S. can do? 
yeah, the U.S. could definitely help with relations and and allow the people to flourish within their own countries. And I'm, I've come from Puerto Rico, and it's the oldest colony, and it's a colony of the United States. And I see firsthand how the economy has suffered so much um, at the hands of the United States, um, even though we are seen as citizens. Um, I think that in other countries, especially in Africa, there are people that are just basically uh, stealing uh, their resources and not allowing the people to prosper. Um, and because Nola, of this. 20, 20 seconds, U.S. policy? Uh, colonialism is dead. We shouldn't try to continue it. And I think that we should support the asylum seekers who need help, but we should stay out of other people's governments and not tell them how to govern their countries. And with that, listeners, we conclude the 2024 Lehrer Prize for Community Wellbeing Award Show. This program was produced by Megan Ryan, Lisa Allison, and Zach Goddard-Cohen, with special thanks to Molly Hindenburg and Annie Shear. We had Shana Sengstock at the audio controls. Congratulations again to our honorees, Power Malu, Jesus Awayas, and Nula Odahiri Naranjo. Thank you all so, so much. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian. I'm Brian Lehrer. Join me tomorrow at 9.30. Yeah, I'm going to go take a nap and then be back at 9.30 in the morning for live special coverage of the Supreme Court oral arguments on Donald Trump and the insurrection clause of the Constitution. Does the Constitution require that he be stricken from the presidential ballot? Till then, have a great rest of the night.